Friends, allies, scholars, warriors, men of science, men of magic, wizards, witches, warlocks, hermits, ascetics, intuitives, royals. The great King Henrik owes you a debt of gratitude for arriving here today. And I also give you my thanks. Gathered in this chamber are the brightest minds of Alfheim, and for no small reason have you been summoned. As many of you have guessed, the object before you is that which has been rumored. A mainframe has appeared in the Kingdom of Grey. The strange sounds that you're hearing, the odd sensations, and most of all, the eminent feeling of doom in this room are all due to this object. Our charge is to study, to quantify, to surmise, to estimate, to suppose, and find a way to understand this relic of another world. The challenge of our task cannot be overstated. The object cannot be permeated. It is made of nothing we know. No machinery we comprehend can explain it, but also it seems to give off a heartbeat, an emanation of warmth, as if it's a living thing. The object can scant be touched without driving men mad. Cases have included eyes being gouged out, a gibbering uncontrollable laughter, terrifying physical changes. Some have simply disappeared. I have no roadmap for how we will come to understand this thing. Only I can tell you that the import of the task is the only thing that will outdo the difficulty. It has recently become known to us that on the shores of Lake Rand, a colossa has awoken. The ruin once called the Eyes of Odium was in fact a buried titan, and by means we do not yet understand it has been awoken and it begins to stir in the mountains southwest of these sacred towers. The appearance of this titan and the mainframe before you were coincident. But which is causal we do not know, only that the king believes these are no coincidence and I have to agree with him. Time is limited, my friends. And our window is as narrow as an arrow slot. But we must succeed. Now, I open the floor. What is to be done?
Hey, greetings, program. Sold Hanker and Fernail back once again. Brandish Gilhelm here with Runehammer and the RPG mainframe. Welcome to episode 36. Can you believe that? The mainframe is 36 years old. <laughs> okay, it hasn't been 36 years, but sometimes it feels like 36 years. Anyways, enough silliness. We got some business to attend to today, you guys. So today we're going to be talking about stats and science. We got to up your game. Let me pull up my scientific data right here. Now, before I get into this whole stats and science thing, I just wanted to do a really quick mailbag that came up because it's kind of a good one. So um, let me see if I can rummage around here. Where is that stinking mailbag song? Oh, here it is. Okay, hit it. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. Today, all right. So, in the mailbag, I got a good one. Uh, it was last week, asking about how can you sort of answer the campfire effect problem when you're doing online play. Now, if, if you guys know about the the campfire effect, it's kind of my buzzword for the fact that it's very uh, natural for human beings when we gather to want something to gather around or to look at. It can be very awkward to gather with other people with nothing to look at except each other. It can be very strange. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times um, some tabletop sessions wind up feeling like, like this. Everybody just has their character sheets. You've got your DM over there and that's kind of it. Now you maybe believe in the theater of the mind as the ultimate form of D&D &D, and God bless you, hell yeah, do it your way. But sometimes just as a human level gathering, the game aside, this can feel kind of odd. And so to me, the campfire effect is just a way to say, you know, a, a way to make your table feel more natural and more fun is to give your players something to look at. You don't have to do 3D terrain or a big battle map or any kind of extravagant stuff, but something. A common solution for this is uh, putting art on the back of the DM screen if you use a screen. Another one is like to have maybe a laptop or a, a TV screen or even like an iPad that's showing JPEGs you find on the internet of NPCs and locations and stuff like this. Anything that can give people something to look at. And this isn't even necessarily to make the game more real or more easy to imagine. It's just literally like a psychosocial phenomenon. It's, it's much more comfortable for everyone if they have something to kind of stare at while they think rather than each other or the floor. <laughs> you know, they wind up on their phones and stuff like that. So the question is, how, you know, what's the role of the campfire effect in online play? Now, online play, as we all know, can be a little more challenging because there's some talk over issues. It's a little less natural to sort of hear and understand sarcasm and humor and other subtle social cues that happen that are a big part of the game, right? And so this is what keeps some people away from online play. But I think uh, there's a sort of a, a little bit of a, a hard rule here with online play, which is that to get that really good campfire effect, in my opinion, I think you need good maps. And I think saying good maps, unfortunately, that does go beyond just like handouts, which is sort of a roll 20 term for, you know, our, uh, maybe NPC pictures or, you know, a secret note or, you know, a pirate map or whatever. Uh, uh, good maps, what I mean by that are representations of where the gameplay is happening. Now, there's a lot of ways that you can get these visuals in your game in, in roll 20 and other VTTs that can be very simple. You don't need to use all the rule sets that are built into these softwares. You can even use use Google Slides as the post that came up on the forums uh, yesterday mentions. All you need is a simple visual place for people to gather and move little tokens around. 
You don't need a grid. You don't need to measure. You don't need dynamic lighting. You don't need fog of war. None of this stuff. Because for the sake of this piece of mail and answering this question, you're not using the map necessarily to accurately represent your action or your mechanics or any of this stuff. What you're giving is your players, and if you're streaming or something, your viewers, just something to stare at. And I know that may sound sort of dismissive in a way, but that really is what it is. It's something to almost look through, something to stare through into the imagination. The map does not need to be the representation. As a matter of fact, if it is, you can get um, dangerously close to a feeling of a very slow-moving video game. So if you guys have seen some Roll20 games where there's a lot of extravagant effects, dynamic lighting, and people are using arrow keys to move their tokens and stuff, it starts to feel kind of like a video game that's moving at an insanely slow pace. And I don't think that's a really that positive of a feeling. So I think really all you need out of your maps is something to sort of stare through. And this is also true at the tabletop, is maybe you have uh, an iPad. The images that you put on these on the iPad can be something like, here's an NPC. But honestly, I think it doesn't give you as much stare-through capability. And let me sort of explain why. And this extends to the online question. The human brain is wired with more than 400 times the amount of connections as it is any other, as far as visual recognition, to pick apart, understand, remember, and, and comprehend the human face. If you are looking at a human face, it can occupy a great deal of your brain just to look at it, just to, to parse it, to analyze it and reanalyze it and continually evaluate it. Even if it's a still image, this part of your brain is active. Whereas when you're looking at terrain, you don't activate all those parts of the brain. And those parts of the brain, in my opinion, or maybe my theory, if you could call it a theory, I don't think anything I say is really... Theory is too cool of a word. Um, if you're looking at terrain, all those sort of uh, nuanced parts of the brain are used in understanding who I am as a player or who the other players are or what I'm going to do next or what my moral code would drive me to do. And you leave a lot more of the brain available for role-playing and considering your next turn. Staring at character art can actually use up more of the brain than you want to, especially if it's like really detailed in its rendering. So... I think the campfire effect online to answer this piece of mail is best answered by nice, robust maps that not even in great detail, but give a suggestion about the space being played within at that moment. Now, you can use a sort of perspective view, like, you know, here's a view of the inside of a tavern, uh, for lack of a cooler example. But I still think that then it utilizes the parts of the brain that analyze 3D space, that look at perspective, they look at distance, they look at size, they're looking for errors in art. It's very common. Whether you think you're doing it or not, you're looking for things that are wrong and you're scanning and, you know, assessing art. Your eye is being led around by the composition quality, the color quality, and so on and so forth. Whereas when you're looking at a top-down map, a lot of those questions are instantly gone. Representation is even gone. The appropriateness of color is gone, of scale, of perspective. It's all completely gone. Your mind understands you're looking at a rough representation of terrain and of space and of reality. And you don't utilize all these parts of the brain and they're left over for role play. So that's my answer is if you're playing online and you're feeling like you're, you're lacking that nice campfire effect, go ahead and bite the bullet. Maybe get uh, heroic maps or go to two-minute tabletop 
or just scan the internet for top-down views of dungeons or anything like this. And let yourself improvise into the maps if you want to. Like if the tunnel goes left and on your notebook it says the tunnel goes right, is really left and right such a big deal? Does it really affect the fundamental thrust of this adventure and that particular piece of gameplay? You know, maybe you can just play into the visual of the map and, and let it guide you a little more than you're used to. And that could lead to some imaginative expansion as well. So that's my advice is if you're playing online, you need a campfire. Just bite the bullet and make some cool maps. Okay. Now, now that we got the old mailbag out of the way, it's time to hit the guts of episode 36. Now, thank you everybody for sounding off on the survey on Patreon. Love to see just uh, hundreds of votes on, and participation on those surveys. It just reminds me that you guys are out there and it's great to see everyone's interests just bubble right to the surface. And also, it's kind of fun to see that our interests often coincide. And so the reason that this podcast came into my brain and arrived at my table is twofold. First of all, I've been running my Gauntlegrim campaign um, for six sessions now. We're coming up on our seventh, going to be next weekend. And there's a lot of complexity to it just because it's, you know, it's a bit of a long running campaign, in my opinion, at this point. It's not long running like years, but it's long enough for there to be investment and nuance and crisscrossing context and stuff. And I would like to make sure we get a, a good feel to the math in the game. That's the first motivation for this podcast. The second is more like inspiration. And this is from The Order of the Amber Die. Now, if you guys can jump on your internet browser and look up The Order of the Amber Die, you're in for a real treat if you're not familiar with them. These are a group of crazy, crazy Pathfinder players, and their mission is to play Pathfinder adventure paths and modules exactly as they're written. So what they're doing is, in a way, playtesting Pathfinder uh, gameplay material, but also they're, they're testing the boundaries of how authenticity can be found in the hobby by playing material directly as it's written, as true to the material as possible. So using the pregens, using every rule involved and like no homebrew at all, no shenanigans, really playing by the book. And then they also do this in marathon sessions. And I think it makes sense they do marathons because the prep and the precision involved in these sessions is such that you would want to do a marathon But the amazing thing about the Order of the Ember Die is not their marathon gameplay. It is a recent development for that cool group, which is the exact documentation of stats and science for their play uh, for their Pathfinder second edition playtest data. So what they're doing is they're taking Pathfinder material, they're playing it as authentically as possible, and then recording the statistics of their sessions to report back to Paizo about the second edition gameplay tweaks. And this includes dragon stats, character paths, feats, damage done, healing done, all this stuff. And so what I wanted to do was, A, applaud them, bring you guys' attention to them, the Order of the Amber Die, but also take a look at my own game and the minute I did that, I was like, oh my God, I've got to tell the shield wall about this method because I'm not sure we really know our games as well as we think we do. And this is the first sort of aspect of this talk I want to bring up as far as science and data in your game. Do you really know your game as well as you think you do? And for me, the immediate answer was no. <laughs> so let me explain what I mean. 
As a dungeon master, as a game master, you're constantly tuning and redesigning the game. And whether you realize it or not, you are always doing this. You're tuning it to be more difficult, to be faster, to be slower, to augment fighting, to make magic cooler, to do all these things. You may be drawing from a single book, many books, or your own head, but you are a game designer. And more so, you are a game tuner. You are constantly tuning your game, whether it be from one shot to one shot or from session to session in a campaign. You are always tuning. What can make a monster more interesting? What can keep my monsters moving so it's not just tank and spank? Why can't things get more deadly so the characters are more afraid? Okay, last game was too scary. How can I get some low power monsters going so they feel powerful again? All these questions, right? Now, the funny thing that I realized recently is that I've been doing this tuning behavior and the whole time I have not really even known my game. I've been going completely on instinct and guesswork and that's totally fine. It's got me through 30 years of fantastic gameplay <laughs> with some ups and downs. But when I took a hard look at a session and got the, the stats on paper, I, I wouldn't say I was blown away, but it made me see how little detail I really have been working from. And it was a great feeling of like, oh man, wow, now I have a, 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 almost an anchor point to, to work the math in my game with a precise and controlled sort of sense, rather than this sort of haphazard instinct level. Now, you guys know me, I love haphazard instinct. It is the absolute foundation of being a game master. But for the sake of this podcast, come with me on this journey as we think about how much precision could benefit exactly how we tune and understand our game as game masters. Okay, now my first piece of advice before we really jump into this is to consider using a player as your secretary or as your Scrivener. Now, if you use the word Scrivener, somebody's going to be a lot more enthusiastic. <laughs> Over the years, the word secretary has kind of gotten a bit of a bad name or cleric. You were doing clerical duties. Um, but if you use a player to record data, all you need to do is give them a little worksheet with the data you want recorded. Maybe there's little eight little fields of data. And as the session unfolds, they record it. Because remember, you're the game master. You're running the session. You've got enough to think about. They often want more things to do. And so that's my first piece of advice. As you're gathering data on your session, think about using a player as the Scrivener. Now, if you're just not interested in this layer to your game, I can really relate to that and understand too. So you can always work from memory. Just think about your last session, hopefully it was within a week, and get in your journal and try going through this exercise I'm about to go through with you guys and just see what you get. This is not an exact science, but we're taking a little time here to think about exactness. So I did a little bit of both. I recorded one night, and then I also looked at a, another session from memory before I started pulling this podcast together. And they were similar, you know? We're, we're game masters. We have awesome memories, so we can generally kind of put together really good estimates. And then finally, when you do get this data, which is what we're about to talk about, build yourself a thesis and apply that thesis to one night of gameplay, not to an entire campaign, not to a whole big, it's, it doesn't have to be a big deal, but take a look at your data and say to yourself, hmm, I see one really salient thing here. I'm going to, my thesis is that number needs to be higher. Let's say it's that simple. Or my thesis is that little event there needs to happen more frequently. Okay. You've got your thesis. Now put that thesis onto one night of gameplay. So maybe your thesis is, I want characters to be dropping more frequently. I mean, I'm looking at my last five sessions and we had one player drop once. Let's say that happened. 
So now you have an idea to build a night of gameplay, which is going to be a deadly night of gameplay. Now that's a common problem, but also common is like, man, these players aren't really defeating that much stuff. Maybe my game is too hard. Okay, let's build a night where your thesis is there's lots of disposable enemies and so forth. And that's why we're going to go through this exercise is to build that thesis and apply it to one night of gameplay. Now, there's a lot of ways that we could proceed right here, right? Science is a very large, very sort of infinite method of reproducible results, right? And so what we're going to do is first take a look at our results, take our thesis, apply it to a game night, and then measure again and see what we get. This is like scientific method 101 right here, okay? So here is what I did to analyze my game to look deeper into the numbers. Now, you may find more interest in other numbers or more or less as far as how many things you're tracking, but here's what I did. So in Gauntlegrim session six, I tracked these stats. Total rounds elapsed, total turns, total playtime, number of settings seen, types of monsters seen, NPCs seen, loot acquired, loot lost, character milestones, total damage, total damage by PCs, player group healing, damage done by the environment, number of times PCs reached zero hit points, number of times PCs failed a roll, number of times PCs passed a roll, and targets played. Then I have some notes at the end for mechanical discussions we had, a best part and a worst part. Now I want to walk you through these because I just ripped through them really fast, okay? So this is one session marking down this data. Total rounds elapsed. In Gauntlegrim session six, we had 13 rounds of gameplay. Now, every once in a while, you're going to be rolling a D4 timer, and you're going to say to yourself, like, man, maybe I should use a D6 or a D8 for this. But when you look at this statistic, 13 rounds was a whole game session. A D4 timer is plenty. Four rounds is almost a third of your entire session. When you think about that, that starts to give you a much more realistic sense of how long a round is. And we play pretty stinking fast, too. So, wow, that is very interesting. So in your mind, you could think, wow, I'm only going to get like maybe four timer rolls in a game. That's quite interesting. Maybe I'll start overlapping my timers. Maybe I'll use turn timers rather than rounds. Maybe I'll use a D2 timer. Maybe D4 is just too big. And these kinds of thoughts, wherever they may lead for you in specific, are great thoughts because they're coming from data. Okay, second one, total turns. We had 52 total turns for a session. So a turn is, you know, the player goes, the player goes, the player goes, the DM goes, the player goes, the player. That's 52 turns. And obviously, turns is just total rounds multiplied by players plus DM, right? So it's like we have 52 turns in a game. And so this is kind of interesting. You can see there's a lot more resolution when it comes to turns. And this is what leads a lot of game masters to want to measure turns for their timers. You know, I roll a, a D6 uh, turn-based timer rather than a D4 round-based timer. Now, again, wherever this takes you, it's the data that's rich, not the decisions. We all are different and we're all going to have different thoughts and opinions as we come out of our data. Okay, my next one is total playtime. So for these 52 turns, it took us about three and a half hours. Now, this is a little bit interesting because it gives you a sense of how many turns happen in how much time, obviously. And then you look at, well, I tend to play on a board or like a scene for about, what, an hour or so, a little more than. So, hmm, that's a little less than 20 turns. And again, time and the amount of time per content in your game start to become a ratio you can understand. 
This is like critically useful information. Okay, next I have settings scene. So this is how many sort of cool different environments did we experience in a session. And this is for this session, two. Two different settings were seen. This to me feels disappointing. I need to up my game. I need to simplify my encounters so that I can at least get to three in a night. I'm forcing my players to look at only two scenes for an entire session. Now, you guys have definitely played D&D sessions out there where the whole session is one scene. I've done it too. We've all done it. But it's not ideal to me. I think moving between scenes is some of the biggest fun you can have at the table. Not necessarily defeating or even growing your character, but seeing what's next. And so I really want to you know, set my own discipline and my own standard at three scenes per session minimum. I really want to push myself in that area. So for me, that's like my thesis almost for next session. I want to see three scenes. Next, we have type of monsters scene, and this was three. This was three in a session. Three is kind of a magic number for me, and I feel pretty good about this. I don't need to see a dozen types of monsters in a session. That can be dizzying. But if you only see one, that's kind of lame, like zombies all night long. That's kind of weak. Two, I would say, is your absolute minimum. You need zombies, and then you need the, the overlord zombie. That sounds like a decent night of gameplay, but even then, a little bit anemic. And so this is where three, again, is a magic number. Let's say that third monster is a shadow lasher. Now you have an evening. Uh, NPCs scene is three. This, I think, is a good number. Again, I think three is very magical. So in our Blood and Snow game that we played the other night, we encountered... I think maybe four NPCs, and, and it felt really good. I think three NPCs that are nuanced and that are interesting and have memorable names and stuff, that's enough challenge for you as a game master to create. So feeling good about that one. Loot acquired, one. Oof. I don't have very greedy players, so they don't scour the world for loot. And we have a whole session here where only one loot was acquired. Now, that's good for controlling the power curve and stuff like that. But as far as like... You know, the happy sort of, uh, you know, limbic sensation of, of getting treasure, that's not very good for a session. So I, I feel I want to up my game there. And again, I think the magic number could be three, three pieces of loot for session. So, so see, I'm starting to see my thesis here. I'm starting to see where I need to improve. Okay, loot lost. This is brutal. Six. Six pieces of loot were lost in this session. Now, granted, there was a wipe in this session. And so when they wiped, everyone in the group lost two pieces of loot as they awoken, or as they awoke, sort of um, cocooned in this sticky web fluid, you know, like sort of alien style. It's a great way to do a wipe is the, 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 the party wipes out instead of just killing them all. They are all, you know, kept alive and cocooned to be fed upon. And that's your next scene. So a lot of loot was lost in the session. Absolutely brutal. Six is a lot. Character milestones for this session was two. We had a spell milestone and then we had a, a character learn the Myconid language, which felt like a major kind of evolutionary moment. I feel like this is a good number here. Um, you don't want this to be too high because characters are going to get spoiled and like your power curve is going to go up really fast and stuff. So I feel like two per session feels good here. I'm kind of moving on without a big thesis. Okay, total damage done by enemies. This is a little bit of an estimate because this can be hard to record, um, but my estimate is 40 for the night. Um, and then total damage done by PCs, my estimate was more like around 60. Now, this is actually a little bit low for a session. We had some... Really uh, big, difficult, and oddball monsters happening. We had some RP. We had a bit of a snafu in a tunnel. And then we had the wipe. 
So actually, I don't have a big thesis for myself on this number, but I would expect damage done by enemies to be much more like 60 to 80, and damage done by PCs to be up, upwards around 100. Remember, usually you're going to have uh, a lot more hit points in your enemies, and so you should see this comparison that the enemies are doing less procession total than the characters. Otherwise, your characters are like dead all the time. <laughs> Okay, so then next we have player group healing. How much healing was done in a session? You guys, this is brutal. They don't have a healer in their group. And in this session, they didn't even use any potions or anything. Now, I'm not sure if they just had hubris going in full effect or if they were just losing some of their tactical awareness, but we had zero. Zero heals were administered in this session. And you know you, you know that this is real because we, we had a double wipe in this session. The second wipe was... Sort of a, a soft white because we did have one character who was kind of semi-up being rescued by an NPC and they kind of wormed their way out of that second TPK. But we did have a, a, a wipe you know, earlier in the session and this stat reflects that problem. These guys need heals. This is a thesis that could come from your game data that actually could go to a player thesis. Like, you guys, we need heals. Look at how much damage is going out and look how much we're healing. Like, no wonder we're wiping out. The next one I'm a little disappointed in, damage done by environment was zero in this session. Now, I blame this on having like one too many beers before the session. And so things get like really exciting and the pace is really there. The enthusiasm is really there. But I do feel if, you know, if I have like, I don't know, maybe two beers before the session, I can lose some of my cool environment mechanics. I'm not looking down at my notebook often enough because I'm so excited and I'm in the game. Now, I'm, saying, I'm not saying it's bad to have, have beers when you're playing. Lord knows if anybody loves to have some beers while they're playing D&D, it is yours truly. But if it's at the beginning, I can lose sight of some of my signature DM style, which is all about environmental threat. And so in this particular game, the enemies were so interesting and the RP was so crazy and we were all having so much fun. I came up short on that mechanic. So this is less a gameplay thesis than it is a little bit of a personal discipline note, like punching myself in the stomach on that one. Okay, times PCs reach zero HP. Wait, hold on to your butts for this one. That's eight. So we had eight drops in one session. That is a lot, you guys. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but that that is a deadly, deadly session. That is players terrified, not really getting their feet under them tactically. And because of the way that these players attacked this set of challenges, I think it's fair play. They, they did not really think about healing much as far as like you know taking inventory of potions and the like they also kind of just went charging in they didn't really use distraction magic or um you know defensive formations it was just a bit of a hullabaloo and so i think this is okay the number of times pcs failed a roll um now these are a little bit estimates but it's somewhere around 17 to 20 and number of times pcs passed their rolls was somewhere between about 22 and 28 to give me my my turn total or 22 and 25, something like that. And so we're definitely not 50-50. They're failing just a little bit less. Now, here's where you can really get some thesis material. What kind of game do you want to run? Do you want to run a game where players are succeeding like 70% of the time? Or do you want to run a grimdark, you know, a Shadow of the Demon Lord type game where players are succeeding like 25% of the time? 
This is totally tunable based on your target if you're playing ICRPG. The target is such a simple way to add this grimness or this ease to your game. And maybe you have a little bit of each in a session. But once again, the idea of this podcast is to get you to think about these stats, not to tell you what the answer is. So are high targets cool? Are low targets cool? Do you mix them in your session? I don't know. That's all the joy of you being a game master. I'm just here to say, think about these stats. Record them for a session. Tell me, tell me what happens. Get back to me. All right, finally, we have targets played. All night, we had a single target. It was 14. And so I see some data, and I see it relative to the 14 target. And so what it tells me is like, you know what I needed to do was probably punctuate with a 16 moment and then drop to a 12 moment, and I would get some more interesting variation in success and failure. And I also get the excitement of changing the target, which always brings a sort of a wide-eyed look to uh, the player's faces, you know, where weather, smoke, darkness, other things change the target in ways that make things, um, you know, more difficult or more simple. Now, finally, I always take a few notes after a session. Um, and in this case, it was mechanical discussions that we had and the best and worst part of the session. Now, just to give you my specifics, full transparency here, our mechanical discussions after the game was over and we're kind of, you know, wrapping up our stuff and finishing off the Doritos was, wow, how about that TPK outcome? Which we kind of negotiated, you know, what's going to happen, guys? And we kind of got rescued by these Myconids. And in so doing, there was a lot of gear sacrificed, but also my players have become slightly Myconid infused. We're going to have some change in their characters. They're going to be slightly fungal. And that's sort of the cost of this of this TPK. But we talked about that TPK. We we discussed it. You know, do you guys want to let these characters die? And we especially had one player said, no, man, I love this guy. Okay, well, then let's negotiate ourselves a story that's going to keep it going. And that's what we did. And we just had a discussion afterwards of like, yeah, I think that's a good way to do a wipeout is let's just talk as a group. Secondly, we have an armor nerf, so we've been moving back and forth between soak armor, between no maximum armor and a maximum, and we actually cut it down to the rule written book, or the book written rule, <laughs> which is 10 is your maximum equipable armor, and so we brought down our tank's armor by 4, I think even by 6 when he's maxed out, and so he was getting hit a lot more, and we're still working on what our ultimate uh, armor solution is. I think damage reduction might be a, a good way to get armor to feel even cooler. Uh, and this is just an ongoing sort of design discussion. We also talked about tier four enemy power. So you guys know that I use tiers for my enemies to simplify their roles to keep the game moving fast. And this was the first time they had seen a tier four enemy. And I just came came clean with my players and told them how I do that stat block. They're plus eight on their roles and plus two on their efforts. This is lethal. This is really brutal. Um, and they just kind of nodded. I think that's what's expected of a high tier enemy. And then finally, we had this discussion of like, what could be these myconid properties? You know, are they like myconoids from ICRPG where they have stretchy limbs and other things? Or are they more like myconids from D&D where they, you know, like they kind of grow in pods and they can communicate with spores and all that? <laughs> and that was, that's a fun conversation. Now, as far as the best and the worst parts of session six, best part was definitely like we just had a constant feeling of excitement and danger. We were all on the same page. There was a lot of adrenaline. There was a lot of fireman carry. A lot of, you know, don't die on me, man, kind of stuff. The worst part, though, was almost what comes with that kind of session, which was the wipeout that we had and a little bit of player confusion in what to do. I think at one point they thought that this enemy called the darkness was something they couldn't even attack. And so they were taking sort of strange actions. And I don't think they had a really concrete sense of the 
the terms of the battle, the, the exact conditions of the battle. I think there was just a little bit of base level confusion, which is okay because remember, we're adventuring through a world of mystery, right? But you don't want the confusion then to work against them. It can be great to use confusion as fear, but then the confusion needs to clear and they have a good sense of agency and what to do. And just for me as the game master, I felt they were just a little too confused and that's kind of on me. Um, I need to give clearer descriptions that give them hooks to build their actions on. Um, rather than just, you know, this kind of dread in, in confusion. Confusion is great if it's fun, but not if it works against you. So there you go, guys. Now, I know this may be hard to, to just completely wrap around if you're not, like, taking notes, which that's just crazy. So if you look on Patreon, I'm going to throw up the, uh, the thinky sheet here on what these stats were that I tracked and, um, and maybe some of the, the thesis data that, for me, came out of my stat tracking. And uh, I hope you guys can give this a try. So what's the kind of, uh, you know, the, the hard pitch or the hard sell on doing this? When I saw Order of the Ember Die doing statistical breakdown of their game sessions, it blew my mind insofar as it revealed a lot of Pathfinder's design choices. Namely, Pathfinder is a game that is designed to be revealed 1% at a time. A game session is going to reveal a very few number of mechanics and feats and components and events relative to the number of components, events, and mechanics that are available in Pathfinder. Pathfinder has this huge game design that's available, and any one session is only going to reveal a very small portion of it. And I saw that in the statistics that the Amber Die posted, and that's very interesting to me. Why? Because... My design aesthetic is a game that reveals almost all of its mechanics every session. The mechanics are that useful, and there are no mechanics beyond that level of useful. They're all cut. Now, this does give rise to this critique on Index Card RPG that it's somewhat simple. It's somewhat redux, and it absolutely is. But I was feeling proud of index card RPG in how many times the core mechanics are coming up. The use of targets, the use of timers, the dying mechanic, the use of effort. Like these fundamentals are the bread and butter of the session. Now that isn't to say that this is the end all be all way of things. Actually, I think it argues for both. If your interest and fascination in a game is the slow and gradual revelation of all its parts and moving pieces, Pathfinder 2nd Edition is going to be paradise. It is really spectacular. And I think seeing the Order of the Amber Dyes work really kind of confirms and verifies this. Now, as for D&D 5e, I'm not sure. For one thing, I haven't run a session of 5e and, and tracked stats. But also, 5e to me feels much more mechanically redux than Pathfinder 2.0. And I don't know if that's just because my instincts or the way that I've consumed not that much of the 5e material since its early days. I still think that the 5e Monster Manual is one of the best books that D&D has ever put out. But overall, 5e has lost my interest as it continues to put out material. The material just seems sort of overdone in a way or somehow just hasn't found its way to my table. I, I'm wandering off with my interests into areas like Tiny Dungeon or Simba Room or Pathfinder 2 or even Rise of the Rune Lords, which is kind of a throwback at this point. But what a, a treasure trove of data. 
And that isn't to say that anything's any better than any other. These are just my tastes and habits right now. But I think it's very interesting not to just make these choices and theses and assumption based on gut, but to record a session or two of data and actually look at it because it's it's kind of fascinating to see what really happens under the covers rather than just your kind of gut level feeling of what happened. So that's about it for episode 36. I invite you guys to join me in recording the actual data of a session and actually experimenting with this sort of scientific approach toward your game. Now, you don't want to live this life like all the time. This sounds harrowing, honestly. But to do it once or twice, I think is going to give you a, a really illuminating moment. Because when you look at those amber die stats, I feel it was very illuminating to them. You know, especially if you have things coming up zeros, like things that aren't ever happening, that can make you say, hmm, I kind of want those things to happen. Things that make you go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> wow, now you want to talk about a throwback. <laughs> Arsenio Hall, what the hell? <laughs> okay, guys, I'm going to get out of here. This is, uh, what, what, what is this? This is episode 36, the RPG mainframe. And coming up next here in December, we got a couple of weeks left in December. We've got a couple more podcasts to do. And I am going to get another little adventure out for you guys, just like last month with the Mercury Dale. And honestly, I think it's a great habit to be doing these monthly. It's kind of exciting. I love making them, and I hope you guys like playing them. Thank you, everybody, for your support here on Patreon. You know it's keeping me alive, putting them presents under the tree for my loved ones. And I cannot thank you enough. The shield wall continues to grow. Please be sure to jump over to forums.runehammer.online to keep up with the community. Thank you, patrons, and welcome all the new patrons. You guys are awesome. This is just going to keep on rolling, rolling, rolling. And in 2019, we're going to have a bunch of new stuff, which I, I think I say just about every podcast. Like, new projects are being worked on all the time. It's all I do. This is all I do, man. This is my jam right here. So thank you guys for tuning in to the RPG mainframe. Keep it real. Don't steal. And you always going to get a deal, okay? Have some fun with that scientific method out there, guys. And I will see you on the internet. It's old Brandish Gilhelm signing off. It's more beautiful than I ever imagined. <laughs>